This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! With Uber Reserve, good things come to those who plan ahead. Family vacay? Reserve your ride as soon as you book your flights. To all the planners, now you can reserve your Uber ride up to 90 days in advance. See Uber app for details. Well, I think the fact that you're strapped to several tons of steelwork hurtling around a track Hmm. sometimes up to 5G is a most terrifying thought. Um, But, you know, I think you should... I mean, two ways you can actually combat that. One is to think about it objectively, that this really is a very safe mechanism. And actually, I am strapped to probably one of the most safest experiences uh, on on the planet. Um, And the other thing is, yes, you should be scared because that's what it's designed to do. (laughs) You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello, I'm Alexander McNamara, online editor at BBC Science Focus. This week, we're asking you to scream if you want to go faster. Okay, we're not actually going to strap you into a fairground ride, but we are going to take you on an emotional roller coaster all about, well, roller coasters. Brendan Walker originally trained and worked as an aeronautical engineer, but now has a far more thrilling job title. Quite literally, he's a thrill engineer. He's been working with theme parks to help create the most exciting roller coasters using design principles to craft extreme human emotional experiences to the rides. He speaks to BBC Science Focus editorial assistant Amy Barrett about why people have a love-hate relationship with roller coasters, the fine line between fun and fear, how to get your thrills in lockdown and, most importantly, where the best place to sit on a roller coaster might be. She kicks things off by asking him what exactly a thrill engineer does. Well, a thrill engineer, I mean, I came up with the description uh, because I really like the idea of the sort of objective practice of, of engineering, which is creating uh, things with with rules but also the the very subjective uh, elements of human emotions which is the the thrilling aspect so in a sort of very headline sense uh 
being a thrill engineer means I really try to craft a human emotional experience and very extreme uh, human emotional experiences, uh, but using um, design principles. And what kind of psychological levers are you trying to pull when you design a roller coaster? And which are the most powerful ones of those? Well, when you think of a roller coaster, in fact, if I put you on a roller coaster and blindfolded you, um, your body's levels of arousal track very, uh, well, pretty precisely the, the changes in acceleration forces which are felt. Now, arousal is just uh, one half of the picture. If you're looking at a very simplistic view of human emotions, you can look at two dimensions of pleasure or valence, as the scientists call it, and arousal, which is our bodies being pumped up and kind of ready for action. Um, so roller coasters are so successful because they really grab hold of that uh, element of arousal. And because it's so tightly um, interlinked with our uh, physical sensations uh, that we get from the world, that we can almost force an emotional experience by the very shape of the roller coaster. And is there, has there been any evidence that, that going on roller coasters, thrill-seeking in general, is it good for you? There's, a, I mean, I've done some studies at, uh, in fact, at Thought Park, looking at uh, well-being associated with going on roller coasters. Um, the first thing that they wanted to look at was going, well, will it help you to lose weight? And I could tell you walking between roller coasters uh, <laughs> will make you lose more weight than actually being on one. In fact, I think we found out that being on a roller coaster uh, was equivalent of uh, eating one less chip. So, uh, <laughs> so phys- physically, no. But mental well-being is a really important aspect of what I do. So there's uh, when, uh, if you experience pleasure, the other half of the emotional experience in a social context with friends, people you care about, that can be translated into happiness. And happiness itself is a very infectious uh, phenomenon and it is uh, a real contributor to, um, to mental well-being. So, it's all within the, 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 the broader discussion about um, the importance of play uh, and social play um, in society and that being uh, really pivotal in uh, the mental health, mental well-being of the society. Mm-hmm. But not everyone enjoys roller coasters. Why are some people more, say, sensation-seeking than others? Well... If you look at the personality types of people who uh, tend to go to theme parks uh, and go on roller coasters, uh, in fact, I usually quote uh, Marvin Zuckerman, who's at Delaware Tech. I, I think of him as the grandfather of uh, thrill-seeking. Uh, he looks at personality types and in, in, classifies them in, in four different dimensions. One is thrill and adventure-seeking, which is very much to do with roller coasters and that kind of uh, high adrenaline kind of experience. The other one is experience-seekers, people like unusual experiences like uh, theatre and circus and magic. The other one is disinhibition, so people uh, who might like to scream on a roller coaster really let, let themselves go. And the other one is susceptibility to boredom, which is a great measure, uh, if particularly if you're going to queue for an hour to get on a roller coaster that lasts only, <laughs> only two minutes. So, um, And then there's another dimension, which is our uh, perception of risk. And all of these factors vary 
uh, throughout our lifetime. They can also vary with other uh, events in our life, such as having, uh, having children. Um, they can alter this, this sort of psychological uh, profile. But so th- we tend to see people who score high in thrill and adventure seeking and experience seeking um, will enjoy roller coasters. But also it is people's perceptions of risk, novelty seeking, and critically, I think it's um, how we ride roller coasters. So that's such a, a rough kind of way to understand people. But if I went on a ride with you, we might have a great time because we're good friends. If I go on a ride because I'm doing a very objective uh, scientific exploration of the ride, I'll have a different experience. If I go on it with somebody I don't like in the rain, I could have a miserable time. So mm-hmm. there are so many contributing factors. And how do you combat that as someone who's designing a ride knowing or not knowing the um, the situation that the passengers will find themselves in when they go on it? Yeah, so I think, um, as I was saying, with, with roller coasters and, and, and controlling people's levels of arousal and that being so tightly controlled with their emotional experience... Uh, these other elements. So the other ways you can create thrill or emotional experience can come through um, being valued, which is a very sort of social setting, Uh, how you feel about yourself, how you think others are perceiving you. There's a spectacle, which is to do with uh, magic and and amazing things that are happening around you and really question uh, your belief systems. And then there's all sorts of ideas to do with power and control, which are very much tied in with... um, with uh, potential energy and kinetic energy. And so all these factors, um, there are multiple streams and multiple ways you can actually think about engineering and creating a ride. And it's really flipping between these different modes where you sort of examine the experience. Um, But I can say you can make the most amazing ride, but um, unless you're riding with the the right person, it it means nothing. So I tend to like, when people say, what's your favourite roller coaster? There's a ride called, well, it's a kind of magic mouse um, kind of ride. It's There's one at Alton Towers called Spinball Wizard. And it's a roller coaster which doesn't invert, but the car you're sat in, four people can go in it, two pairs back to back, and the orientation of the car spins round. And you don't know whether you're going to go forwards, backwards, down slopes, up hills. And it's that element of um, unpredictability, which with people you know or with strangers somehow breaks the ice and gives this sense of social cohesion, like in any kind of like disaster where you don't know something's going to happen. And so I think rides like that, um, when they're very carefully, the social dynamics are carefully managed, I think you can then immerse people in the other aspects of the ride. So, yeah, it, it's subtly, and I think a lot of these techniques have much more in common with uh, life performance and life theatre than they do with engineering. Mm. And so you've been involved from the conception right up until the end, the, the final result, is that right? Yes, yeah, so I have been involved in the design of roller coasters from um, uh, early inception. So, for example, uh, the Wicker Man at Alton Towers, um, all we knew was they had a footprint of land and we had uh, an audience who were demanding a new roller coaster. After that, there were no other prescriptions for uh, how or what we would make. So in a situation like that, there are several things we look at. One is what are the cultural trends uh, in society? Um, What novel technologies are out there? Uh, What are people talking about? So this is where 
the idea in that particular instance where uh, wooden roller coasters came in because obviously in America they're very big and very popular. In the UK we only have one or two. And then this theming to do with the Wicker Man, the, the horror scenario kind of started to evolve. And then uh, there are other rides like uh, 13 at Alton Towers where they that had been pretty much uh, finalised, but there was one feature on it, which was the vertical drop feature, which if you don't know uh, 13, you go in and a roller coaster. This isn't a spoiler, by the way. I think most people know this. <laughs> you, you, go, you go into the uh, dark tunnel, the ride stops, and then it falls, uh, your carriage falls vertically through the dark. And they wanted to know for... Um, for the 95th percentile, that's for like 95% of their audience who go to Walton Towers, was this going to be thrilling? Um, they wanted to know how far in the dark should we drop people? And there's a there's quite a precise calculation. We can work out how quickly the brain um, processes novel information such as dropping in the dark and how long it takes to translate that into um, action such as gripping the arms of your chair or screaming or something else. Um and, say, and if you look at psychology experiments in this area, you find the time it takes for the 95th percentile, which is about uh, 0.7 seconds. And then you calculate how far in 0.7 seconds can we drop. And that is the distance the ride will be. And that's quite a critical calculation because if you make it too short, people aren't going to be thrilled. They're not going to be scared. If you make it too long for every extra inch of steelwork you create, it's going to cost tens of thousands of pounds. So oh there's a, not only a psychological, but there's an economics kind of uh, modelling behind this whole thing. Absolutely. So in 0.7 seconds, how far did you drop them? Oh, God, I'd have to go back now to my, <laughs> <laughs> to my calculations. Let's see. I think it was um, in 0.7 seconds. I think we were... Now, that was formulating response. So I think that was around three metres. Uh, sorry, that was to uh, detect um, that something had happened. I think it was 1.2 seconds that it took for the 95th percentile to formulate a response. And that was just over seven metres. But people uh, who've ridden um, 13 will probably know that uh, it doesn't drop you seven metres. It's actually more like five metres. And the way we do that we shaved off another two metres of steelwork, saving tens of thousands of pounds, was to pump prime the, the brain. So we drop the people in the dark a very short amount of time. The brain suddenly goes, right, I understand what's going to happen next. And the second time we drop them, which is much further, it takes the brain much less time to process that information. So again, it was a, an awareness of psychology and, and this sort of pump priming that we were able to reduce the amount of steelwork and still critically deliver the thrilling experience that people were expecting but in any other situation a drop like that would, would frighten the hell out of me how does that turn to thrill and kind of excitement um at that point <laughs> yeah i feel like i i, I uh, my job's terrorizing people <laughs> um there's um see is it the as animals, we have uh, a really strong relationship with thrill. So um, in evolutionary terms, thrill has evolved as a mechanism to reward the persistence of life. Now, whether that's evading danger, uh, not being killed or maimed or, or suffering any kind of morbidity or mortality, all the way through to um, um, reproduction, sating hunger, quenching thirst... Uh, chasing prey. These are all quite exciting things. And in modern life, modern society, we very rarely 
uh, particularly in our Western world, we're very lucky in some senses. We don't experience those extremes. But to feel thrilled is to feel truly alive. I mean, these are at the extreme ends of, of our emotional experience. But in a world where we don't feel thrilled, we feel flat. We don't feel excited. Um, so theme parks and roller coasters, part of their appeal is because they're replacing those mechanisms that did used to naturally exist. But whereas in the wild, we truly were faced with real dangers, the job of a theme park is to create the perception of danger. And so we are, we all allow ourselves to be immersed in this, uh, this play this world of play where we all go along with the idea that we're actually in danger, but actually the, the danger of any accident to the theme park, you're more likely to fall off a donkey um, in Skegness than uh, have any accidents on a theme park ride. Is that true, really? Because there's, you know, yeah. I know a lot of people who are, who do really hate hate rides and are anxious that. I mean, I for me, when I see them going around, I think, how on earth do you go upside down and ha- not have the wheels? drop and, and drop just fall off. completely what, what would you say to people that have that fear well those, those um um thomas miller actually designed the upstop wheels which are the things that keep you from falling off the track and i'd say if you trust wheels to keep you on top of a track you can trust those wheels to keep <laughs> you underneath the track that's for sure uh but he actually that patent for that was over 100 years ago and there are many patents like that to do with health and safety which have evolved over 100 years And I mean, you can look at the statistics. I mean, they say that, yes, you're safer on a roller coaster than you are in a civil aviation airliner. But that doesn't help most people. I think the fact that you're strapped to several tons of steelwork hurtling around a track, (laughs) sometimes up to 5G, is a most terrifying thought. Um, But, you know, I think you should, I mean, two ways you can actually combat that. One is to think about it objectively, that this really is a very safe mechanism. And actually, I am strapped to probably one of the most safest experiences uh, on, on the planet. Um, and the other thing is, yes, you should be scared because that's what it's designed to do. <laughs> so in some sense, embrace it. Uh, but also, if it's not for you, look for rides which don't invert, ones that are less extreme. And even if they're no good for you, go and hold the coats of people who go on and live the experience vicariously. So enjoy them as they're screaming. And even if it's only that, that amount of a sensation that you can stomach, literally, um, that still may be thrilling for you just to be present and watching other people having that kind of experience. So you can experience at all kinds of levels. Mm. But up to 5G, what on earth, what happens to our bodies when you go up to 5G? Yeah. Uh, uh, a lot less than uh, when you're going up to 10G. That's where <laughs> there are. Uh, <laughs> there's uh, uh, If you look at the rocket sled experiments by uh, Colonel John Stepp, uh, who was the uh, RAF medical uh, officer and who was also a test pilot, um, he self-tested. I don't think this would be allowed today. He put himself on rocket sled experiments and went uh, beyond 10G. Uh, this was laterally going forwards. Uh, he detached his retina. Uh, he caused all sorts of uh, hemorrhaging. I mean, it was he survived, but he was like going, "Well, where where are the limits?" And I think he found them. Um, mm. But that led to the invention and evolution of G suits. And so, specifically, what happens depending on which way you're facing? If you're on a Superman type ride, you're facing headlong into 
the way you're going. If you're sitting on a standard ride, obviously the forces are pretty much going through your body. And the way that rides will work is, you know, all the banking and all those twists and turns, they primarily try to maintain the the majority of the G-forces acting through the body. So through your head, down through your spine, through the seat of your pants and into the seat below you. And that's because we're pretty good at withstanding G-forces in that particular um, plane. Uh, but if you sustain them for any period of time, uh, that, that kind of force will drain blood out of your head. So you'll start getting whiteouts or blackouts. Sorry. And uh, if you go the other way, uh, you'll start getting redouts and greyouts. I, I have to check this, actually, the, the right way around. Hmm. Um, but essentially, blood is going to your head or from your head. So blacking out is a is a real possibility uh, but on rides roller coasters we only experience 5g for uh momentary periods in fact they usually mark transitions between different forms of motion and there they can be the thrilling moments when we hit those peaks uh but you should know that we we don't experience them for any length of time we're constantly changing which is one reason why experiencing those kind of g-forces of that length of time uh, is safe, unlike a, a fighter pilot who might experience 10G and have to hold that in a turn for many seconds. And that's one reason they have these pressure suits which apply pressure to the body and make sure that blood pressure is maintained to the head so that they don't pass out. So are there things that just couldn't be built into a roller coaster because they're too scary or potentially too dangerous? Yeah, I had a student at the Royal College of Art who did his PhD and his final... Um, thesis was the design of uh, a euthanasia coaster which took people they got on it and it uh, went through increasingly tighter loops increasing the centripetal force consistently so first off you'd black just black out quite nicely but then ultimately you would hemorrhage and die he said it would be a pleasurable death but i i i i I'd hate to think. I mean, I wouldn't like to be the first person to test it, that's for sure. So incredibly tight uh, radius uh, loops, which will generate G-forces above 5G, uh, they will uh, be quite dangerous. I mean, whiplash uh, is also an issue. So if you go into a curve too quickly, the transition between straight movement and curved movement can create a spike in G. So even though the sustained movement around the curve might be uh, something like 5G going into the curve might be 10G. So, and that's also one reason why these teardrop shaped loops have evolved. These they're called clothoid loops, which take you in gently and then increasingly get tighter in the curves. Um, so, curves are sort you have to watch out. Sudden changes which can cause whiplash. I mean, they are uh, pretty bad. Um, but no, apart from that, as long as uh, your body is kept clear of anything that might uh, hit it. I think uh, trauma and rapid changes in forces are the worst things that could happen to you. But none of these things ever find themselves into actual rides. I'm assuming you, you spot these things at what kind of stage in the testing? Well, th- there are companies like uh, Gerschlauer in, uh, in, in uh, Switzerland who um, do a lot of testing on this. So they are very big firms. They're almost like three-dimensional train manufacturers and their level of engineering and precision is quite phenomenal. So they will do computer modelling at a very early stage and work out the the forces that are going to be applied, not only to their carriages, but also to the rider. And there are various things you can do. If you want to roll somebody 
but you don't want uh, the blood to go rushing to their head, you can put the centre line of that roll uh, through the, well, they call them heart line rolls. So you put the the centre of the roll around the centre of the body and the, the body is kind of evenly distributed around this this kind of barrel roll. So there are ways to uh, to optimise track layouts for the comfort and the safety of, of a rider. But we are reaching limitations i don't think there are many things on a roller coaster which would feel nice and be safe that currently isn't being done there's um in fact the founder of ghost hour um is um vernish dengel and he's in his 80s now but a lot of the features like the cobra roll or the little bunny hops that you get on rides i mean the cobra rolls are sort of uh, ride where you sort of swoop up and then back down on yourself a little bit like you might imagine a helicopter doing a, a kind of u-turn mm. um that's one of his signature curves but he's got a real a kind of tacit understanding of uh, of what feels good but i think a lot of that language he's already worked out everything else on that is uh kind of riffing on the same uh on the same music now so what is in store for the future of roller coasters and rides well, for the future of rides, I've been particularly fascinated with um, the use of virtual reality. Well, in fact, actually any technology. I initially started looking at ways to broadcast uh, video from rides, exactly for the reason you were talking about people who might not want to be on the ride themselves, but might want to see what's happening to somebody on the ride. So being able for somebody on the ride to be able to broadcast their experience to somebody on the ground completely changes the social dynamics of what's going on Mm -hmm. and enables somebody on the ground to live vicariously through the eyes of the person who's on the ride, but also the person on the ride realising they're performing to somebody on the ground. And that element of performance, so if you encourage yourself to scream, even if you don't feel like screaming, it's been shown that 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 can also pump prime your emotions. So there's all sorts of dynamics that change just with that technology. But most recently, I've been looking at the application of virtual reality onto, um, onto amusement rides. I think roller coasters aren't the right kind of um, ride to take VR because the pleasure of a roller coaster is being able to get that high vantage point to see the real world ahead of you and appreciate your movement through the world on this architectural scale. But there are other rides, simpler rides I'm working on, which you probably find at the fairground, which are much sort of the circular flat rides, they don't invert. But with the application of VR, I can reverse engineer the physical forces that the rider's being felt, and then create a virtual world that makes the rider believe they're on a ride which is much more extreme uh, than the one they're actually on. And I think for me, that's, well, that's where my excitement is at the moment, trying to augment all these existing, but what people perceive to be not very thrilling rides. And I'm hoping to up the ante on those. Mm. And you've mentioned that when you were working on Wicker Man, you wanted something that was sort of maybe novel, something people hadn't seen before. Um, if you're always seeking bigger and bigger, more novel thrills, would there be there, would we ever come to a point where nothing would actually thrill us anymore? Yeah, I think with, uh, I mean, the scientific definition of thrill is... Um, is the uh, is the uh, is our response to novel stimuli, and so from generation to generation, what was novel for my dad and my granddad 
is no longer novel for me. So I'm looking for something new, and that can be new culturally. It can be new sensations. Um, and so, yeah, we we run out of superlatives. And it's one reason when you look at the marketing of new rides, it's always the fastest, the highest, the mm. most number of loops. It's all, and we we gravitate towards novelty. It's in our human nature to need novelty. So we will just find other things to uh, to become novel. So it could be the application of technology. I mean, fairgrounds themselves, it was the first place that most people in the UK experienced electricity uh, because they'd never seen electricity before. We go to the fairground, you suddenly see electric light bulbs. So, and same with cinematic projection, first appeared at fairgrounds. So the fairground uh, and amusement parks have been a place not only for uh, novel sensations as in physical forces but also novel forms of technology so i don't think we're ever going to run out of novelty as long as we're still inventing we will always in fact i always think generation to generation we're always looking to ride the latest technological innovation and that will always be true Hmm. and how important in in creating a thrill is the story of a ride or the the magic of a roller coaster because they will have sort of themes at the moment don't they yeah, the theming can be quite important in a ride. I mean, there's two reasons. One is uh, from a marketing perspective, and and actually marketing is very important because when you look at the um, the overall thrilling experience, it starts right at the moment you see a poster which shows a ride, promises to deliver a thrilling experience, which is all part of the marketing. That's when it really captures our imagination. And then we start to build up a picture in our mind of what that ride might do to us. We buy a ticket days ahead. We start to get excited. We're going to go on that ride. So the marketing and the theming is really important because it gives us a way to understand the ride and what it might deliver to us. And particularly if we can talk to other people, that's much easily communicated in a story. When we get to the ride itself, uh, for a ride like Wickerman, um, there are, let's say, chase sequences or moments you want to avoid danger. So those can be borne out in a kind of loose narrative. I mean, as I said earlier, the um, the majority of the emotional experience comes from the twists and turns and the physical uh, accelerations we, we feel on a ride. But the narrative does give us moments of uh, spectacle and excitement and also give us a way to experience and contextualise those movements. So again, it's a little bit like seeing a, a kind of avant-garde modern dance, I suppose. Mm. It can seem a little bit hectic sometimes, but as long as there's a strong underlying narrative we can fall back on, uh, that usually helps take us through the experience as a as a, an entire um, uh, entity. Mm. And you've he- I've heard that the most exciting part of a ride is usually when you're getting strapped in. I- is that not the case? <laughs> yeah, they, some of the experiments I conducted at Alton Towers, uh, particularly on Oblivion, which was the world's first vertical drop roller coaster, um, we noticed, because I, I was monitoring the, the physiology uh, of people getting on a ride, so we were looking at their heart rate, their galvanic skin response, which is how sweaty their uh, skin becomes, and also looking at their facial expression. So we had head, head cameras looking back at their faces. So we we're looking at elements of pleasure and arousal. And 
we were hoping to capture people's experiences as they went over the edge of oblivion so oblivion's got one feature you get taken to the edge your carriage dangles over you're held there for two seconds or so looking straight down the brakes taken off and you go plummeting and we wanted to compare different people's responses to that moment and compare that against their different personality types but we had the recorders going all the time and so before people even got on the ride we started all the medical recording equipment and we noticed as the the bars were being closed over people's uh, shoulders these restraints uh, their readings uh, shot up their levels of arousal uh, went to well the actual feature itself only ever achieved 80 percent of the levels of arousal uh, that we achieved when we actually locked them into the <laughs> ride and we think that, that that's really to do with the amazing amount of anxiety or, or anticipation or excitement about what's going to come uh, in the minutes ahead and also it's a point of no return because up until that point you thought you were going to go to the theme park you've bought your ticket you've walked to the ride every single step along that way you can always turn back at that moment there's a compression of time as that bar's coming down it's the very last second you can say no <sighs> i want to get off and then you're locked in so i, I think there's this compression of time and commitment to what's going to happen that um is, is that's what's going on in, in that moment it's a compression of experience mm. and you mentioned that you've captured photos of, of people's faces um what kind of facial expressions do, does, do we all pull the same ones because i can imagine we all look horrendous when we're on roller coasters but is everybody's face doing the same thing and we going through the same emotions well i've noticed on um well i've done experiments on people watching horror films and i've done uh, experiments watching people's faces on roller coasters and other rides and i expected to see a fairly consistent kind of emotional response between people but that's it it's it's really not true um and i can explain it in in several ways um i mean people's facial expressions have gone through moments of delight i mean we have 43 different muscle groups in the face and any combination of those can express different uh, uh, emotions that we're feeling inside and uh, uh, Duchenne was the first person to start uh, logging that and Charles Darwin in his book expressions of uh, emotions in humans and animals uh, progressed that thinking and then more recently uh, Paul Ekman started to codify it and that's why computers can now automatically detect human emotional expressions just looking at these 40 different muscle groups so I was interested in using those kind of techniques to understand people's emotions on rides but people's emotions were fluctuating all over the place if you actually chart pleasure against arousal and place all the emotions on this chart people were going well particularly in all the extreme emotions both positive you know, high levels of pleasure and negative levels of pleasure and and their facial expressions changed they were constantly in flux between extreme excitement, delight, joy, happiness, all the way through to terror, horror, sometimes boredom as well. <laughs> and But the critical thing for th about thrill is that thrill isn't an emotion itself. It is the change in emotions. And so if there's a rapid and large increase in pleasure and arousal, 
uh, it's this movement, this dynamic movement, then we get a sensation of thrill. So for me as a thrill engineer, this was really good news that we've got these rapidly changing mixed emotions. And in one of the um, uh, experiments I conducted, one of the very first ones working with a scientist from MIT uh, who who created this uh, galvanic skin response uh, monitoring device, I put people on fairground rides and used the technology to fire a single-use camera to capture portraits of riders. And those 10 portraits from different rides absolutely set in stone this range of different emotional experiences ex- experienced across uh, these different ride types. And that has been um, mirrors some work that an artist did in uh, New York in the 1960s. Um, he had an exhibition of photographs taken of people at their moment of orgasm. And he showed these photographs without any contextual information. And the majority of people who saw this experiment thought that people were either being murdered or tortured <laughs> or in some, some way experiencing an, un, a, you know, an unpleasurable experience. And it was just because he'd managed to capture the moment either just slightly off or just before. But this, this, this amazing flux and change in emotions uh, during these very extreme emotional experiences is just incredible. Mm, such a fine line between the fun side of fear and an actual kind of believing a real threat. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that, and that's where, that's where you know, if I'm working with a university, um, so I'm currently a professor of creative industries at Middlesex University, and if... I were to do an experiment through a university, and particularly through a psychology department, if you say that you're going to make people believe that they're really in danger, you would be in their ethics committees for, <laughs> for, for years. Uh, yet in entertainment, um, there is, uh, because there's this sort of tacit understanding and a kind of contract that uh, it's an unspoken contract, it's an unwritten contract between people who go seeking entertainment and those who provide it. The people going into those amusement parks are saying, I want to be challenged, I want to be taken to the edge, to this dangerous edge, but I trust as as part of this um, agreement, you are agreeing to ultimately be keeping me safe. Mm -hmm. And so I think talking to your friends about those ones who are scared to go on roller coasters, I think you can reassure them with that. I mean, that is the contract that's always being presented between the suppliers of amusement and thrilling experiences and those who seek it. We all know that this is the game, but nobody ever states it. (laughs) And would you ever put yourself in that thrill seeker? Would you consider yourself a a thrill seeker? Gosh, I, I... I'd always thought of myself as a, a real thrill seeker. I, you know, I, I own a motorbike, but I don't drive daftly. I'm quite safe on it. Uh, I like unusual experiences, but sometimes I'll ch- I'll chicken out. And I have this sort of um, kind of love-hate with thrill. And um, well, it's not a love-hate. It's more like a. I think my perceptions of risk are quite um, uh, low. So the things I'd really love to do, but whether it's social or whether it's actual body harm that I'm worried about, something prevents me. So I'm constantly conflicted, but I do love watching people on rides. And one reason why I've become a thrill engineer is to make experiences for others to experience that I can live vicariously. And this um, intrigued me. And and part of uh, 
um, another research project I did, I went to see if I had the thrill-seeking gene because part of our um, our uh, reasons for thrill-seeking can be put down to genetics really? as well as personality types. Yeah, and there's a there's a gene um, the on chromosome eleven, the gene the D4DR gene, which is the dopamine receptor gene. So when we experience pleasure the body releases dopamine, dopamine binds to the dopamine receptor, which gives us this real sense of euphoria. And this is the reward feedback we get, you know, and it can be a problem because it can lead to, to addictive behavior, such as uh, addicting to gambling, even drink. Mm. But in roller coasters, think about it in roller coasters, uh, this, this, but we, we rely on this, this burst of dopamine. But if you have a, a polymorphism, this is a, a defect in this D4DR gene, it means that it can't bind to uh, to do, uh, to dopamine as well as, as efficiently as as other um, uh, receptors, and so this means that the body needs to produce more dopamine to give the receptors a better chance of picking it up. So, which is another reason why people might be uh, termed thrill seekers, but they're not seeking. Uh, adrenaline they're not adrenaline junkies that isn't the bit of thrill they're looking for it's the other part of the emotions it's the pleasure that they're really missing so um, i think there's always a misconception that thrill and adventure seekers are high octane uh, adrenaline seekers it's all about doing dangerous things dangerous sports actually that's only half the picture and it's the other half of the audience that really intrigued me it's pleasure seekers that that are the uh, the often neglected uh, forms of, of thrill-seeking. So did you find out if you had uh, what your gene oh, was? Like? <laughs> well, that's a good Yes, I'm, I'm glad you asked. I did find that I had this polymorphism. Mm-hmm. Um, I am I am a, a bona fide um, thrill-seeker. <laughs> um, I kind of like think, am I a, a now some form of emotional cripple that I need to go and seek greater extreme experiences that my grandma might... Uh, of experience for much lower levels maybe, maybe i am but I'm, I'm not unusual there are in the uk there are about i think around one in 30 people have this uh, polymorphism polymorphism which you know if you're at school you would say in every classroom there would be one person like you um but when you go to the us in australia the proportions about one in 20 and this is thought to be that the people who had this thrill seeking gene were more likely to be adventurers more likely to go and uh, colonize uh these other worlds uh but then you look at other uh, nations such as china i think that the occurrence there is about one in 60 and again they have a very different attitude to um to adventure and going out and seeking uh, new places so it's, it's quite fascinating once you start charting on a, on a global scale who's got this polymorphism that's fascinating. I had no idea there was something. Perhaps there's something I can say is not not to blame for my um, my thrills. <laughs> and so tell me, okay, if I whenever this happens, whenever I get a chance to, when I go to a roller coaster next, where should I sit to get the best thrill out of it? Do I, am I supposed to sit at the front, at the back, on the edge of a row? <laughs> oh right, so. Um... So that if you sit at the front of a roller coaster, if we're just talking about a traditional roller coaster you might see on American film, something at Six Flags. If you sit at the front, um, in fact, actually, the best way to think about a roller coaster is think about where its centre of mass is. So generally, if you sat um, 
on a long roller coaster at the center that will pretty much match your experience if you were sat on a reco- on a roller coaster and it was only one car so the experience of just going around by yourself in one car much like you might on a ride like smiler or oblivion at alton towers <laughs> if you're on a, ro- a long roller coaster if you sit at the front then your experience precedes the experience of the one at the center so for example you will be 10 meters further so example if you're going over an edge you'll be hanging 10 meters down the front before the entire train starts accelerating away and similarly you'll go hurtling over the top of a of a hill where you'd normally think i should be slowing down but you're not because the rest of the train's still pushing you so it can be quite disconcerting at the back of the train uh, you can actually be whipped around a lot more. Uh, in fact, your speeds at the back are feel much greater, even though they're not, because you are doing that thing that you've gone over the hump of the hill, the train's dragging you now down over the other side, and you're accelerating even though you're going up. So it depends what kind of experience. One is, a, I think at the front, is slightly more unnerving and a slightly more out-of-body experience. The experience at the back is much more thrilling and and unexpected but if you want to have a a normal let's say relatively normal experience and it's you're a little bit wary of roller coasters sit in the middle and when i do get to go out and try this this one thrill after the lockdown what one would you recommend oh gosh uh try any thrill or a ride oh yeah a ride ride. perhaps in the uk that i can go to yeah um so I think the most accessible rides, um, I would, for my money, I would go to the fairground and I would find a ride called the Orbit, uh, which was one of the first fairground rides which didn't just do circles in circles, but the arms raise up and they throw you a little bit like as if somebody was throwing balls around in the air. It's a really compact ride. And so the motions you get are really intense. And when I found out that the people who invented that ride and manufactured it actually were more used to making oil rigs and making oil (laughs) drilling equipment, I thought it suddenly all made sense. If you imagine diamond-tipped blades at the end of these arms whizzing around and it boring underneath the channel tunnel, um, I think you kind of get the idea. So that, for me, really brings a ride like that to life. And I think they're much more accessible. So if you can go and find a fair, your local fairground, find an orbit and get on it. <laughs> but until that point, what can sensation seekers do in lockdown to get their kicks? Wow. Um, so, <clears throat> well, I'm working on something right now uh, on a uh, a thrill ride, which is uh, a virtual reality thrill ride, but for rowing machines. So uh, once I finish that, anybody will be able to ride that and they'll feel like they're propelling themselves around uh, a roller coaster track. Oh, so that's one to watch out for. Uh, I've seen a lot of people using uh, VR, but I think without movement, I think VR can be, you know, it's, it's like playing a very good computer game. Mm. But other thrilling things you can do at home, I think, um, I think they have to be much more social. So I think finding ways to use telepresence and games. So some people are finding physical board games and physical activities that are combining 
telepresence, so remote connections between people. Uh, I think that that's always so. I'd concentrate more on the social aspect and linking up with people, but trying to think about how to reinterpret existing games. They might be parlor games. I don't know. Can you play a, a game of Twister over <laughs> uh, with remote distancing over video? I don't know. <laughs> That was Brendan Walker explaining how to get maximum thrills out of a roller coaster ride. The new issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out this week, and in it we find out how dogs can help us lead healthier, longer lives. Otherwise, there are plenty more science and tech stories on sciencefocus.com, and please let us know what you think of the show with a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's it from us this week. I'm off to find out when the nearest theme park opens and book my tickets. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.